Dr. Ann Katz, and welcome to Sexually Speaking, a podcast about all things related to sexuality with zero sensationalism, but lots of information. For the last 20 years, I've worked with individuals and couples who are experiencing sexual difficulties, mostly those related to cancer treatment. I've written a whole lot of articles and books on the topic and traveled all over the world, educating healthcare providers and people with cancer. It's been a great adventure on many levels. And now I've started a small private practice for anyone experiencing sexual problems, especially those related to any kind of illness, infertility, etc. You can learn more about me, my books, and other writing on my website, drancats.com. But on to this podcast. My guest is Dr. Laurie Brotto, an outstanding researcher and clinical psychologist from Vancouver, British Columbia. Dr. Brotto has long been a practitioner of mindfulness, and her book, Better Sex Through Mindfulness, How Women Can Cultivate Desire, is not only the definitive guide to improving one's sex life, but it's also a page-turner with tons of useful advice. But I've talked enough. Let's hear from Dr. Brotto herself. Welcome, Laurie. Thank you so much for having me. So your book has been met with much acclaim, including an award from the Society for Sex Therapy and Research. I've read it cover to cover and refer to it often in my clinical practice. So let's talk. How does mindfulness affect the sexual experience, both the presence and the absence of mindfulness? Mm -hmm. Wow, what a great question to start this conversation off with, Anne. And, you know, I think for your listeners, inviting them to think about um, an encounter in their life that they would describe as toe-curling, edge-of-their-seat, phenomenal sex, where nothing else in the world mattered. And when you ask that question, the, the details of the encounter probably vary across different people, but there's probably one commonality across those stories, and that is likely that they will describe being so utterly present that they could feel every tingle every sensation in their own body as well as in their partners if they're with someone else um, and maybe describing being in the zone in the flow essentially they're describing a mindful experience um, and so what we know from from studying and learning about those encounters is that mindfulness is really an incredible way to boost presence so that we actually feel what's happening during sexual activity. And so often people, I think their bodies engage in sexual activity, but their minds really don't. And I'll often say, you know, if, if you're going to have sex, you might as well show up for it. And it really points to the fact that a lot of people are very distracted during sexual activity. They might be distracted by benign thoughts what's on my to-do list, are the kids going to walk in, etc. Uh, but they're also heavily bombarded by um, catastrophic and judgmental thoughts. Will I reach orgasm? Will I disappoint my partner? Will this work? Will this hurt, etc. And so mindfulness really is about present moment, non-judgmental awareness. And I think it can, um, well, our research has certainly shown over many years that it can certainly help folks who struggle with their sexuality in a variety of ways, but it can also take really good sex and make it great as well. That certainly sounds enticing, but mindfulness isn't easy. I know I've tried to engage in a mindfulness practice and certainly some mindfulness meditation, and it's easy to get distracted. So what do you do if you do get distracted? 
Yeah. So, you know, to be really clear, mindfulness is, um, is very simple in terms of our instructions. I mean, essentially, it's just about paying attention non-judgmentally, right? So the, the instructions invite the person to keep redirecting their focus onto the present moment, whether it's on the body or on the breath or on sounds, and to do it in a kind, compassionate way where they're not judging themselves. So that's the simple part. Um, the really challenging part is in the implementation uh, of it because the sheer nature of our minds and increasingly with society, I think we've become chronic multitaskers to the point that we're not even aware that we are multitasking. So our brains have become so adept at being in a multitude of different places at one time that, that we're not even aware of it when that is happening. So first and foremost, we just accept that the mind is going to take off when we sit down and practice. Um, and that's the, the second half of mindfulness. That's the compassion part of it. So if we can just accept that, yeah, our mind's going to go to all of these weird and wonderful places. Um, and when it does that, we will notice it and then we will guide it back. So mindfulness is not about staying focused for 40 minutes on a single target without distraction. Rather, it's about becoming aware of wherever the mind goes and then guiding it back. Hmm. So we've been talking about being mindful, paying attention during sexual activity. How did you make that connection between desire and mindfulness? You know, I know I hear from particularly the women that I see in my clinical practice that they have zero desire. And beyond the circular model of the female sexual response, you know, I think there is this dominant thought that desire has to come first. And if you're not in a state of near constant desire, you know, sex is not going to happen. So what is the link between desire and mindfulness? Because that's the topic of the book. Mm -hmm. It's interesting because my own research on the use of mindfulness in sexual concerns was not focused on desire. In fact, it was focused on gynecologic cancer survivors who after their treatment reported no arousal. So, you know, they would, they would say, I can feel my partner touching my erogenous parts, my genitals, but it doesn't feel pleasurable. There's a muted sensation. So they were really talking about um, impaired arousal. And what they taught me um, in the early work uh, of, of trying to put together this mindfulness program um, is that by tuning in to any existing sensations that were there, so it was not about creating new sensations. It, it was about let's harness the power of paying attention to notice even the smallest sensations that were there. And what they taught me is that with repeated practice, that signal became louder over time. And in time, with that population of women, when they started to feel more and sex became more pleasurable, they started to desire it more. So that's just one example of how the focus on tuning into arousal can give way to more of a wanting feeling. Um, but there's other ways that mindfulness probably targets desire as, as well. So, you know, Anne, you mentioned um, that we really need to normalize the fact that a lot of people, a lot of women go into a sexual encounter not feeling in the mood, right? They go into it for a host of other good reasons, right? 
they want to feel pleasure or they want to connect with a partner or it's a birthday or it's a celebration or they want to get to sleep or what have you. Um, and mindfulness can be a way of really tuning into some of those reasons that women have. So it gives them permission to actually contemplate um, what's in this for me? Like, why would I stop, you know, sitting on the couch, reading, watching Netflix or doing something else and make a conscious choice to engage in sexual activity? So we've done a few research studies where we looked at uh, the ability of mindfulness to put women much more in touch with their reasons for sex. And and it, and it works. Um, now, at the same time, it can also put them in touch with some of the negative reasons to engage in sexual activity, right? So engaging in sex to avoid a fight, to avoid a belligerent partner. Um, and so in that way, mindfulness can really shine a spotlight in really harmful relationship dynamics that women can then um, maybe do something about. And then finally, another potential way that mindfulness directly targets desire is because we're paying attention to the present moment and we're eliminating distractions and intrusions that get in the way, it means that the mind-body connection is facilitated in a way that directly boosts desire for women. So there's probably a few different ways. That's fascinating. You know, I know for a lot of the women that I work with, therapy really is work, right? You don't just get to sit there and talk about stuff and then, you know, magically everything's okay, or you have those insights, you know, it really is work. And so I see particularly for women who have been treated for gynecologic cancer, um, breast cancer, certainly, because of the invasiveness of the treatment, there is often that dissociation. And women have said to me, you know, when I was having the radiation therapy and I was lying on the table, I took my head off and put it in the corner. So they were acting on a body that was not mine. And that dissociation is what you described, that not being in touch, not experiencing the body as a source of pleasure, but rather one of perhaps even the perception of voyeurism and certainly pain yeah. is profound. And in order to experience pleasure, your brain has to be very much connected to your body. Yeah, I'm so glad you pointed that out. And because I've heard that experience by so many women, by survivors, and also by women with a history of sexual assault. And we've also done research with that population of women in, as well. And so, you know, you look at what was a coping mechanism for them, right, in order to get through the chemotherapy my mind had to escape. And that's, that's how I got through that. And that was effective for that woman at that period of her life. But now she finds herself wanting to connect, wanting to engage in these encounters. Um, and yet the brain has become so trained to, to escape. For some women, actually arousal, physical arousal, especially women who unfortunately have a history of sexual assault, arousal can trigger that dissociation of the mind. And so mindfulness, which is very much about let's tune into the earliest, earliest twinge of arousal and stay with it and follow it. Um, our research has found that it can be so powerful for helping those minds to come back and for curtailing the, the dissociation. That's pretty common. Hmm. So let's talk about the other 49% of the population. <laughs> Does mindfulness work for men? Oh, it's it's so interesting, and because I've I've received so many 
you know, emails from people. What about the men? Why does it say women on your cover? And, you know, the, the book is, was really an attempt to take the science that our team had led and package it in an accessible way so the public could have access to it. Because of course, most of the public don't have access to our medical journals. They stay buried. And so a lot of that really important science is never disseminated. And so I made the choice for the book to really focus on the research that was done on women, but certainly we've not only (laughs) done this with women. So we've used mindfulness now in a couple of studies with different populations of men. One was a group of men who have what you know is called situational erectile dysfunction. So these are men who have no problems getting erections on their own during masturbation. And then with a partner, they either lose their erections or simply don't get them. And there's a heavy component of anxiety and performance expectations, et cetera. So we've done some work and published on the usefulness of mindfulness for that population. And it makes a ton of sense. If he can be guided to stay present and focused on the sensations and not worried about, am I going to lose my erection? Then he won't lose his erection. And sure enough, that's that's what we've found. Um, and then we've just wrapped up a larger randomized clinical trial looking at mindfulness for prostate cancer survivors and their partners. Um, And as you know well, and the sexual concerns, and in particular, the erectile dysfunction in prostate cancer can be permanent for a lot of these men and are not amenable to the Viagra or the Viagra-like pills. Um, And unfortunately, many of these men don't know that or might be told by a care provider, don't worry about it, Viagra will take care of everything. And fast forward a few years and they find themselves in a lot of distress and, and, and their partners in a lot of distress. So our study that we've just completed using mindfulness for couples was really about how do we, first of all, find other ways besides penile vaginal intercourse to be sexual. So that's the compassion part of the mindfulness practice. But also really importantly, can mindfulness be a way to tune in and feel pleasure that's not dependent on an erection? And the findings from that study were very positive. Um, We haven't published the results yet, but but I'm excited to. So we've got evidence from at least a couple of different populations of men. And I've just had kind of anecdotal experience of men from around the world reading my book and trying it out for themselves and, and finding it to be quite useful. Well, moving forward, I know what I'm going to recommend to many of my male patients and their partner. What about pain? Yeah, so... Pain, there's, you know, different ways that pain can show up during sex. The group of women that I've worked with most closely are women with vulvodynia or provoked vestibulodynia. So these are women who, as you know, feel pain with any kind of vulvar or vaginal contact or penetration. And it's, and it's an excruciating pain and very, very distressing. And, and, you know, these women, it often takes them years to get a diagnosis. And then the treatments that, that tend to be first line treatments, in some cases, they don't work. In other cases, it actually makes the pain worse for them. So we have done a large study evaluating mindfulness for women with this provoked vulvar pain. And it really comes out of the much larger body of science that finds that mindfulness can be a really useful tool for chronic pains in general. And in fact, that was the first population that kind of Western iterations of mindfulness was used with in the days of John Kabat-Zinn in the mid-70s is chronic pain. And from this perspective, the mindfulness was not so much intended to reduce the pain intensity, 
but it was focused on reducing all of the distress and suffering that goes along with having chronic pain, right? It's the, is this ever going to go away? Why isn't anything working? What's wrong with me? Why can't my doctors find a solution? All the suffering that compounds and intensifies the pain. So that's really what the mindfulness was focused on, was focused on reeling in the story of suffering. And so we've now published a few studies that has looked at an eight-week group treatment for women with vulvar pain and found not only did it work to dramatically reduce their suffering but it decreased the pain itself, the pain intensity. And, and here's the kicker, the benefits were retained and in fact continued to improve when women were assessed a year later. So it's changed practice in a lot of settings, certainly in our department of gynecology at uh, UBC in Vancouver, it's now become part of frontline practice and our gynecologists are requesting training in mindfulness because it's evidence-based. So there's lots of other populations where individuals with pain have not yet been studied with mindfulness, but I would, if I were to take a guess and based on the literature on general chronic pain, I would say it's probably very useful for most types of pain. And, you know, we know that people with chronic pain, often it alters their personality. Living with chronic pain is an awful, awful thing. And, you know, we have all those associated issues with opioid use and, um, and, and all the problems that come with that. So, Laurie, let's talk a little bit about mindfulness and pain or the treatment or management of pain. Mm-hmm. So chronic pain was certainly the first clinical issue that Western notions of mindfulness was pilot tested with. And so this was the seminal work of John Kabat-Zinn in the mid-1970s. And the instructions of mindfulness for chronic pain were not so much about mindfulness as a tool to reduce pain intensity, but rather mindfulness as a way of curtailing the story of suffering right? So with chronic pains, there are often ongoing and very distressing thoughts such as, will the pain ever go away? Why can't my doctors find a solution? What's wrong with me? Will I never function again? Will I never return to work? So the early literature on mindfulness for these chronic pains found that it can be a very powerful way of reducing that suffering. And interestingly, a byproduct of when you suffer less is there's less signals going up to the centers of the brain that are responsible for producing the pain sensations. So there was actually less pain intensity as well. So based on those findings in the general chronic pain literature, we took uh, the mindfulness skills that we had been using for years with sexual dysfunction, and we brought them to a large population of women that we see in the Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology. And those are women with vulvar pain. So these are women who will report chronic, searing, cutting, burning pain with any contact to the vulva or vagina, um, a diagnosis called provoked vestibulodynia. And one of the things we know with vestibulodynia is that common first-line medical treatments are really not very effective. And in fact, for a lot of women can be quite harmful. So topical steroids and things like that can be quite, quite harmful and can further contribute to the pain. So we've now finished uh, a few different studies evaluating group mindfulness for women with vestibulodynia, both a four-session group as well as an eight-session group and found that, yes, it significantly reduced the suffering that women had, 
but very importantly, reduced their pain intensity by over half. And the benefits were retained a year later when we reassessed women. So as a result of those findings, it's really changed frontline care, at least in our department of OBGYN, where now mindfulness is a part of frontline care. And our gynecologists are requesting uh, to be trained in these methods so that they can deliver them themselves to their patients. That's amazing. You know, you've written... I don't know how many dozen articles and now this book. How do you get all this information out to the general public and to the women who need it? You know, the women who are not in Vancouver uh, and able to access you. And I know you have a lot of grad students that work with you as well. You know, so what about the women in New York or, or Winnipeg or, you know, in a small town somewhere? Yeah. So, you know, I think there, I think I have two answers for that question. And one is, you know, how does a person in the general public just access good scientific evidence-based information about sexual health, especially in a world where we're saturated in misinformation and myths and expensive products with no evidence base to support them whatsoever. And so the first question is, you know, how do we really make sure that the science gets out to the masses? And this is where knowledge translation campaigns, social media campaigns can be really important as a vehicle for the science to be transmitted. So one piece of advice that I would share is, you know, find the credible sources in sexual health. And a lot of them are really active on social media, like yourself, Anne, and through the podcast as well. Podcasts are my favorite. They're my absolute favorite way of distilling so much information right from the original source. It it's not doesn't have to be filtered in any sort of way. So that's one piece of advice is, is find the credible sexual health leaders, whether they're researchers or clinicians or educators, and follow them on social media as a way of getting the information because it can be really challenging to read those scientific articles. And then I think the second answer, which is for anyone who's interested in the mindfulness um, practices themselves, Um, I'll often recommend, you know, develop your own mindfulness practice. And there's lots of great apps. I'm not particularly wed to any of them, but some of my favorites are Headspace and Calm and Happify and Budify are some really good ones. And establish a good daily, solid mindfulness practice that has nothing to do with sex. It just has to do with building general awareness and practicing compassion and letting go of self-judgment. And then from there, after that, my book might be a tool because in the book, I actually talk about now, how do you apply these skills, starting with awareness of sexual sensations on your own and then progressively. And for those who are in a relationship, how do you now move this and integrate it into a relationship? So what are you working on now? So now I'm I'm actually working on a treatment manual that is really intended to walk the reader through the, the the how to so those steps. So my book Better Sex Through Mindfulness was much more kind of theoretical. Um, it was very descriptive at a high level. I described the mindfulness exercises, but the feedback after I published that book was that the public was really wanting more detail. Like walk me through exactly how to do this. How do I pay attention and to what while I I'm having sex with my partner. So this this book is going to be much more detailed. And I'm also going to be uh, recording many of the meditation guides and that will accompany the book itself. That's amazing. I really look forward to it. Uh, how deep are you into the writing? 
Oh, I've just started, Anne. (laughs) (laughs) My hope is to have it complete by early spring. But of course, I need to set the time aside to do the writing. The good news is that because over the years in our research, we've written so many treatment manuals that provide the how-to, a lot of the kind of framework is already in place. And now it's a matter of how to rewrite it in a much more kind of accessible way. You know, I think that the whole knowledge translation dissemination piece, particularly to the general public is so important. You know, I know uh, now almost 12 years ago when I wrote my first textbook, Breaking the Silence on Cancer and Sexuality, much like you, I was getting emails and phone calls from my colleagues, psychologists, sex therapists saying, you know, this book is fantastic. I'm recommending it to my clients. And it was not written for the general public. And then I wrote Woman Cancer Sex and Man Cancer Sex. That did that. So, you know, I think that thirst for knowledge, that thirst for help, particularly yeah. for people who don't have access to people like you and, and me, uh, is so important. Yeah. So, Laurie, your insights and practical advice are literally worth their weight in gold. I want to thank you so much. I can't wait to see the manual and recommend it to the people that I work with. I'll catch you on social media for sure. <laughs> so thank you so much. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you, Anne. So that's it for Sexually Speaking. There'll be more from me with another guest in the coming weeks. If there's a topic you're particularly interested in hearing about, or if you want to contact me about private counseling, please email me at counseling at drannkatz.com. That's counseling, C-O-U-N-S-E-L-L-I-N-G. So there are two L's in that. I look forward to hearing from anybody. Stay tuned. Something's coming in October.